and I ejected, my co-pilot ejected, our parachutes opened, and we came floating down over enemy territory. Today's guest was a POW during the Vietnam War. He flew 74 successful combat missions over North Vietnam and made over 100 carrier landings. Then on his 75th mission, which is five days before the end of his tour, he was shot down over Hanoi, taken prisoner, tortured, and spent the next six years in North Vietnamese prisoner of war camps. Episode 102, Charlie Plum. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. So thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm on Aussie, so we're very informal. So I'm going to call you Charlie. Is that all right? Instead of Captain oh, Charlie that's fine. Plum. Okay, yeah, that's fine. No. <laughs> now, um, I have researched your story quite a lot because I've heard you on some podcasts, which is how I discovered your story in the first place. And you were a POW in the Vietnam War. So I want to take you back into sort of the early days before you were captured and why you joined the Navy in the first place. Because we had subscription in Australia for the Vietnam War. Was this subscription in America? There was, but I was not part of uh, of that process. At age 17, I graduated from high school and needed an education. My parents couldn't afford to send me to college, so I started looking for scholarships. And I used the old shotgun approach. I just sent my resume to everybody I could think of. <laughs> and lo and behold, I got an appointment to the Naval Academy. Um, and so I, I really had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, you know, I was a patriotic kid and uh, a Boy Scout and uh, and uh, marched in the band and uh, and waved the flag. And so, I mean, I, I I really believe that everybody owes a certain debt to your country. But um, but but to me, it was an education. That was what I was after and not necessarily a long stint in the military. So um, the way it works in the States is you have to be nominated to any of the academies, West Point, Naval Academy, Air Force, Coast Guard, to any of these academies, you need to be appointed by a congressman or a senator. Well, I was the second alternate. I was the number three guy to go to Annapolis. The first guy discovered girls, (laughs) which was, which is problem, or (laughs) maybe that's what I should have done. (laughs) Uh, The second guy, I got an appointment to the Air Force Academy, and so lo and behold, I was uh, accidentally sent to Annapolis. So uh, Annapolis is a four-year school. We graduate with a a degree. Mine was in engineering. Um, And of course, they teach you all about the military. It's it's a a lot of military history. It's a lot of military tactics. You learn to drive ships um, and um, tie knots and send the Morris code and all of those kinds of things that military people do. Um, and uh, I graduated from the Naval Academy, married my high school sweetheart, uh, and uh, was assigned Navy flight training. So I went to Pensacola, Florida, uh, and uh, then Beeville, Texas, where, uh, where one of my flight instructors was John McCain. Uh, oh. Then I went to uh, Meridian, Mississippi to fly jets. 
and out to San Diego, California, where I helped to start the Top Gun School in California. Had you um, always wanted to fly, or was it just they randomly selected you to, to do flight school? I, I requested uh, a slot in flight training. <clears throat> now, when I went to the Naval Academy, see, I was from Kansas. I was from the middle of the United States and I had never seen the ocean. I'd never ridden in an airplane when I went to the Naval Academy. So I, so, uh, I remember as a kid in, uh, on the farm watching airplanes fly over and wondered if I would ever have an opportunity to even ride in an airplane. Wow. Um, and so the Navy gave me the opportunity not just to ride in one, but to pilot one. And not just that, but the hottest airplane in the world at the time, we, we could go 1,400 miles an hour. It was a, a supersonic interceptor. And so uh, wow. I felt very, very, very privileged and uh, pleased um, that, I, that I could be selected for that. Because you jump through a lot of hoops, you know, physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, in order to, to fly a jet airplane. Got Did a, I uh, hear correctly that you were doing astronaut training? Astronaut, yes. I was uh, when uh, well, I was at the Naval Academy when uh, John Kennedy uh, was elected president, and I marched in his inaugural parade. Three years later, I marched again down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and his funeral. Now, during that three years of presidency, he said, we will put a man on the moon this decade. Now, this is the 60s. Uh, not because it's easy, but because it's difficult. Well, we all cheered and we all signed up because the first astronauts were all fighter pilots. And, um, and, and so it was sort of natural for, for us to, you know, really shoot for the stars. And so, I enrolled in the astronaut program. Now, I didn't get very far. I uh, was went through some of the physical and mental testing for astronaut, but you know, I was uh, I was going to war, and so um, that <laughs> that sort of uh, stopped my uh, my astronaut uh, uh, dreams. Uh, in incidentally, a lot of prisoners of war were in the astronaut program. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my best buddies over there. Uh, had actually orders to Nassau when he was shot down. He was a prisoner for eight years. And so, um, so he wasn't able to continue his astronaut training, but uh, a lot of us, a lot of us were really involved in the astronaut program. So how did you go from starting up the Top Gun uh, school to then being over in Vietnam? Well, um, in San Diego, uh, I went out there to what's called a RAG, R-A-G, Replacement Air Group. And this was to teach me to fly the F-4 Phantom. Well, there was a long uh, wait to fly this airplane. They had too many students and not enough airplanes. And so there was a six-month wait. Well, a buddy of mine, Paul Krukey, uh, who had just gotten his wings as I had, uh, went down the flight line. We found a squadron that was training instrument pilots. And uh, th this is, you, you train pilots to fly in weather. And so it's a, a, the front seat is usually the instructor and the back seat is a student with a, a bag over, over his head. So you can't see out. And so you're wow. simulating flying in, in, the, 
in an instrument situation, the flying in the fog, flying in the in the cloud, you can't see a horizon, you can't see anything, and uh, and and so we signed on because we were qualified to fly this airplane. It was a little jet, um, and um, so, but that wasn't much fun, you know. And so, every um, about every uh, every hop, um, we would save a little fuel. We would lurk off the coast of San Diego when the F-4 Phantoms, the big hot new airplane came out. We would pounce on these guys and dogfight with them and wipe them out because we were we were smaller and lighter and we could maneuver where and they were much bigger, bigger airplane. They were faster than we were. But but we, if we could turn inside them all the time. And so. We actually got into trouble doing that because it was illegal. We weren't supposed to be out there dogfighting with the Phantoms. But one uh, with the commanding officer of the, of, the, of the Phantom Squadron had just been to Vietnam. And he said, you, you look an awful lot like MiGs back there, and uh, we're getting killed. Um, the kill ratio was terrible because the F-4 Phantom had been designed for the Cold War as this high altitude supersonic interceptor and we and we were not trained to dogfight. And so he he said, you want to come back tomorrow and teach us how to dogfight? And so we became the first adversaries, uh, you know, the the enemy, the enemy squadron um for the top gun school. It wasn't called top gun at the time. It was a syllabus in our training. Then it went to the Navy Fighter Weapons School. And then uh, Tom Cruise came along, and, and now it's called Top Gun. <laughs> so, so how yeah. did you? What, what year would did you end up over in Vietnam? Uh, I went in 1966. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was shot down in 1967. I came home in 1973. So I was there for just short of six years. Okay. And so, how many missions? You're obviously flying, dropping bombs, doing you know the will of the 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 navy and uh, military. How many missions had you flown before you were shot down? Before you were shot down, I'd flown seventy four combat missions. Wow! Yeah, uh, about half of them were fighter. Yeah, you know, we we were uh, our, our airplane was a fighter airplane. Okay, it was not designed to drop bombs. It was designed oh. to carry carry missiles. Uh, we didn't have guns on our airplane, but we got into Vietnam and they decided we need to hang bombs on this airplane. So they did. And so half of the time at sea, we usually at sea for about a month at a time and two weeks of the month, we would be fighter. That would be uh, air to air. You know, we were, we were protecting the fleet and the other airplanes from the enemy fighters. And the other half of the time we would be attack that we would have uh, bombs and rockets. And um, and so uh, seventy four missions. I was five days before the end of my tour in Vietnam. Oh my goodness! Yeah, five days before I was to go home. In and, all uh, of the training that you've had up until that point, had you had any? This is what to expect if you if you're captured if you're shot down. I had been through four different survival schools. They're called Siri S E R E, survival escape resistance, evasion. And um, it's where they take you out in the woods and rough you up a little bit and let you go and you grovel around and, you know, eat snails and bugs and 
try to get water out of vines and stuff like that. It's a survival, kind of a survival thing. And, uh, and then in a couple of three days, they capture you and they put you in this simulated prison camp. And um, so, uh, so I went to four, four different schools to teach me to be a prisoner of war. And they were all pretty worthless. <laughs> uh, it's oh, like practicing. Sorry, keep What's going. It's like practicing bleeding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, do you, how do you do this? Um, the, 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 big, the big difference. I mean, you know, the, being kicked around, you know, it's kind of like being, a, being on a football team. You know, it's, it's just it's just sort of guy stuff, you know, You're just slapping each other around. It, it, it really didn't, I mean, it hurt, but it, it wasn't permanent physical damage. But the difference in these four schools and the real thing was we always knew that the school only lasted, you know, three, four days. And at mm -hmm. the end of the school, we'd be back home, you know, having brownies and milk, you know. And, uh, and so you always had something to look forward to. In the prison situation, in the actual prison camp, we never knew from one day to another uh, if we, when we'd go home, if we'd ever go home. It would be, you know, depending on what, what was happening in the war, would we be uh, lined up against a ditch and shot the next day? So that was the big, big difference. Talk me through the events of the mission that saw you shot down. The mission I was on was, was called an Alpha Strike. It was a big, big strike. We had three aircraft carriers and five Air Force bases and about every plane we could get in the sky. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of airplanes in the sky that day. It was the 19th of May. I didn't know it at the time, but it was the birthday of their president, Ho Chi Minh. Mm. Now, uh, and it was sort of the, you know, the psychological warfare thing was we were going <laughs> to, we were going to catch them celebrating the president's birthday. And, uh, you know, maybe they'd be all out, you know, on the picnic grounds or something. Uh, it didn't happen that way. Um, they were ready for us uh, when we went in. And that day, eight F-4 Phantoms, the plane I was in, were shot down. Um, I was one of eight uh, that were shot down in a single day on the 19th of May, uh, 1967. So uh, my phone rang in my stateroom about, I don't know, 3 a.m. to tell me that to get ready for this. So I got on my gear and went down to the, to the ready room and uh, briefed for this flight. And this is looking at maps and looking at the enemy and the defenses and where, where you're going to coast in and where you're going to coast out and who's going to lead the flight and all this stuff. Uh, Reflighted my airplane uh, and climbed in with my co-pilot. Uh, we launched off the aircraft carrier now, this is a, a catapult shot, which is kind of a jolt in itself. Rendezvoused at 25,000 feet and um, plugged into an airborne tanker, which is another trick, um, you know, to, to plug into this basket in the air. Uh, took on another 3,000 pounds of jet fuel, and I was ready to go. Pointed the airplane towards the beach. And uh, I'll never forget looking to my left and to my right all over the place, just airplanes, as far as I could see. And I remember feeling really, really good. It felt, you know, part of it was I'm going home in five days, you know, and 
And man, you know, I'm really pleased not a, that I've survived this because we'd lost about a fourth of our squadron killed or captured by that time. And, uh, and I was still alive and I'm going home. And then I felt just to be, uh, you know, a, a part, I, I really believed in, in our mission. You know, we were, we were fighting for freedom. We were fighting these communists that were trying to take over our, 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 our ally. And, um, and so I joined, you know, I joined up on, uh, uh, the wing of my commanding officer. And, um, I was the youngest guy in the squadron. And so I flew with the oldest guy in the squadron, uh, and the most experienced guy. And uh, we pointed towards the beach. Now we were fighters during that two week period. So I, I carried no bombs or rockets. My uh, armament was uh, four Sidewinder missiles and four Sparrow missiles. So I had eight missiles, air to air. I was, you know, I was there to shoot down enemy airplanes if they attacked um, the if they attacked the bomb group. I was right on the edge of the flight, and uh, the airplane was hit by a surface to air missile. I did not know what what hit us. Um, all I knew was that my instrument panel started to light up like a Christmas tree, just, you know, red lights all over this panel. Um, the engine started to wind down. I lost my hydraulic pressure, so I had no control. My stick was, was worthless, and the airplane started to roll upside down. Now, the way you get out of a jet airplane is with an ejection seat. Okay, it's like a rocket under your chair, and you set off that rocket, it shoots the chair off the top of the airplane. Uh, at this point, we were upside down. <laughs> so uh, uh, I figured that was not going to go well. Uh, <laughs> ejecting upside down was going to plant us in that rice paddy. So I had to turn the airplane upright. Uh, the only manual control on an F-4, well, it's, it's actually just, it's boosted. It's, it's hydraulically boosted, but you can get a little bit of play on the rudder. Now, a rudder doesn't normally turn an airplane over. It's used to yaw the airplane. But I am living proof that if you hit the rudder hard enough and you say a prayer, it's loud, loud enough, and the airplane started to shudder, roll back upright, and I ejected. My co-pilot ejected. Our parachutes opened, and we came floating down over enemy territory. When you're floating down under canopy, do you have time to... I'm imagining that everything would slow down. So did you have a moment to sort of realize the, the gravity of the situation or were you just in a, I'm going to swear now, Charlie, were you in a, oh shit situation or were you actually like, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm probably going to get captured. Like what was going through your mind? Uh, oh shit. Pretty much. Uh, defines it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's better than I better than I can describe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, I I feel like I was in shock. I flew the skies of Vietnam, thinking that they didn't have a gun big enough to shoot down Charlie Plum, uh, and um, and I was surprised when they did. Uh, I I you know I had escaped several missiles. Uh, I had uh, I'd flown through a lot of anti-aircraft artillery. I had, uh, I had uh, flown through small arms fire, rifle, rifle fire, and I had escaped all this stuff, you know, and I just felt like that I, I couldn't be shot down. And so 
so I, I, I think, I, I think I was just in shock. Um, the, the, the ejection process is all so automatic. It just all happens very quickly and all at once. You, you, you can't even, I mean, you, you can't even follow the stages of the process because in a jet airplane, you're tied into that airplane several places, six places on your body. Your ankles, your your waist, and your shoulders are all tied to this ejection seat. And then your oxygen, your communication, your navigation, uh, your G-suit, your anti-gravity suit, uh, your survival gear, all this stuff uh, is strapped on you. Okay, and so when the ejection seat goes out of the airplane, all this stuff has to be disconnected from the airplane and reconnected to the sources that keep you alive in your ejection seat. Like there's an oxygen tank in your ejection seat. You don't use it until you eject. So anyway, so it's, 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 it's a, um, a very complicated process, but it all happens just like that. Just in the blink of an eye, you are out of that airplane spinning around Drogue chute opens to stabilize your seat. A bladder uh, comes out from the back and it pumps you out of the seat. Your your own personal air uh, uh, parachute opens, and that all happens within a second. So, um, so I was startled and shocked, and uh, it, but suddenly uh, things got a lot quieter, and I'm hanging in this parachute. Did you see? Or could you see your co-pilot at the same time? I could. Uh, he was about maybe half a mile away. I saw his parachute. I was very happy to see that he had, you know, he had survived um, the, the the ejection because that's you know it's a pretty big thing, and uh, a lot of guys a lot of guys didn't. Um, so he was coming down, and and I was uh, coming down at the same time. Uh, I remember. Well, first of all, I was the I was the flight officer in the squadron. So I I had my little book and I assigned pilots to missions. So I had all the names of the pilots in this book. Now I I had um abbreviated their names. I had a, a three-letter designator for each pilot. And so uh I didn't have their whole name in there, but I still was afraid that the enemy would get my book and know who was in that squadron. And so I started ripping pages out of this book i ate some of the pages and 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 i, I scattered the pages uh, ripping them apart uh, i then took out my two-way radio i've got a handheld radio uh, and i called uh, my commanding officer and said um, uh, don't don't try to 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 rescue me i'm too far inland uh, see you at the end of the war um wow see the problem the problem was if when you go down behind enemy lines and they get your radio, then they can call in uh, for a rescue and then shoot down the rescue helicopter. And so I was afraid that was going to happen. So I made that one call and I tore the antenna off the this handheld radio, threw the antenna one way and the radio the other way, and they fell into this rice paddy. Um, and uh, then I bowed my head and said a prayer. And ask for a little extra strength that day from above. Wow. So you're landing in the rice paddy? I landed in the rice paddy, about waist deep in the rice paddy. And I um, 
was captured immediately. They were, they were shooting at me while I was coming down in the parachute. I had bullets snapping past my ears. Wow. Uh, and uh, so they knew, you know, I, I was just in the south part of uh, the, the Hanoi, the capital city, which was good news, bad news. The good news was I was captured immediately and uh, taken into the prison camp, which was not very far away. The, um, uh, you know, obviously the bad news was I had no place to escape. There was no, no way to get out of that area. So um, captured immediately, um, tied to a chair in a school, in a, a little schoolhouse. And then, uh, and this is all with the peasants, you know, they, these were just farmers that captured me. Uh, they had axes and rifles and machetes and that kind of stuff. But then the soldiers showed up in a Jeep, tossed me in a Jeep and hauled me into the, 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 the Wallow prison camp, the one that we named the Hanoi Hilton. Mm. Famous Hanoi Hilton. Yep. When you arrived um, in the camp, what was the first thing that they did? Were you with your co-pilot at this stage? No, they took him in a different Jeep. And uh, we both arrived at the camp at the same time. We were both gagged and blindfolded and, um, you know, arms behind our back and uh, feet tied together and he's kind of hopping along. And, um, but I knew that he was alive. Uh, he had been burned. Um, I, I had some burns, but he, my co-pilot was sitting on the gas tank. And so he had oh. um, much worse burns than I did. So, uh, but I, I had some some bur burns going on. Uh, so uh, I, I knew he was alive. They took him one way and, I, and me another. I didn't see him for two years, but I knew he was alive. And so I was, wow. you know, I was comforted with that thought. So when you arrive at the camp, concentration camp, essentially prisoner of war camp, I mean, they're mm -hmm. not rolling out. I mean, Hanoi Hilton is a tongue-in-cheek. Everyone that's aware of the Hanoi Hilton would know that. that it's not like the modern-day Hiltons where they're rolling out the five-star car carpet, you know, for you. Yeah, that's right. What happens when you arrive in that camp? You're coming through, I'm assuming, the gates in the, in the Jeep. What then happens? Uh, we, we came through the gate uh, in the Jeep, and the Jeep stopped, and they uh, tossed me into uh, a prison cell. Um, the cell was eight feet long and eight feet wide. And um, I stayed there for several hours before their goon squad came in uh, and an interpreter started asking me questions. Now, our code of conduct in the U.S. military says that if you're captured, you're only supposed to give name, rank, serial number, date of birth. And... That's, uh, in fact, that's stipulated by the Geneva Convention. Uh, and so, and they signed the Geneva Convention on prisoners of war. Um, and so that's how I answered their questions. They were asking primarily for military information, which I did not know. I was a very junior officer. I hadn't been told anything about future flights or nuclear weapons or anything else. I didn't know any of that stuff. But um, but 
and but I, I just gave them name, rank, serial number, date of birth, and and uh, so they wrapped me up with ropes and irons and whips, and uh, the pain was just too great, and so I started lying to them, and just told them the biggest fibs I could think up, and uh, and they, and they believed it, uh, and so they let me alone for a while. Then they came back again, asked me the same questions. I gave them the same answers. And they tortured me again. This went on for two days. Um, so when you're saying, and you're glossing over it, are you are you okay to discuss the realities of what they were doing to you? Oh sure, sure. No, I, I you know, I, I'm open to any any question. That you want to know what the torture was like? Yeah. Okay. The, the, we call it the rope trick, and it's an ancient way to torture a person. And they'd been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years where they wrap your um, uh, your arms behind you, behind your back. Your elbows are actually touching behind your back. Um, they put manacles on your wrists. Um, and uh, the, the problem is these manacles were made for much smaller people. They were made for the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese are probably uh, two-thirds the size of an American. And so... Uh, they cut deeply, and I still have scars on my wrists from uh, those manacles. These are behind your back. Um, and then they take shackles, you know, U-shaped irons, and put them around your ankles and run a bar through the shackles so that your ankles are all strapped together. Then they run a line, a rope, uh, from your ankles up over your shoulder and back down to those manacles then they tighten the rope they put a, a, a stick of bamboo in the in the rope and they start to twist the stick and tighten the rope the end result is your shoulders are pulled out of joint remember your elbows are actually together your elbows are actually touching each other your shoulders are pulled out of joint and i remember one time looking up and seeing my wrists above my oh, head backwards and so and your feet are right up in your face so you're, you're wadded up like a human pretzel. Um, and uh, I think one of the reasons that's a, an effective torture is that it doesn't kill you. It doesn't even, you know, it doesn't, uh, it, you don't pass out. You want to pass out. You know, you would very much like to just go unconscious during this, but you don't pass out. You're still alive and well and hurting. So then if they, uh, you know, they still don't get the answers they want, they take another rope and hoist it, hoist you up to a hook in the ceiling. Um, and they, they, they hoist that up. Uh, so you're hanging there now in that same position, only this time it's hanging and you're bent up even more. So uh, that was uh, that was the most common type of torture that we all went through. You know, uh, like 90% of the prisoners of war shot down in the first uh, four years of that war. Well, no more than that, six years of the war. Um, were, we were tortured by the rope trick. And um, and the other guys uh, were passed out and couldn't remember. So we think that they got to just nearly all of us with that. How do you stay... Um... I mean, obviously your mind would be consumed with the pain in that situation, but was there anything that you were saying to yourself? Like, how did you mentally get through that? Um, I started figuring out these 
what I now call plateaus of pain, where, you know, it, it would hurt. And I would think, this really hurts. But if it doesn't get any worse than this, I'm going to survive. Uh, I'm alive. I'm still breathing. If it doesn't get worse, I'm going to be okay. And then they tightened the rope and it got worse. And then I would say to myself, well, okay, it's worse now, but I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. If it doesn't get any worse than this, I'm going to survive. And then they tightened the rope and it got worse. And so I established these plateaus of pain where as the pain increased, I just set set a new standard. Um, But one of the things that happened in those first two days was that um, I felt like about the time that that I, I knew I was really hurting, really hurting badly. My shoulders were out of joint. You know, my feet were up in my face. I was just all wadded up. And um, so you were in that position and, for two days, forty-eight hours. No, no, I would, no, not the entire time. Uh, okay. They they would leave me there for maybe an hour. Uh, or maybe two. It seemed like two days, but yeah. it was only a couple of hours. And then they would, they would uh, you, you let they would they they would untie me and uh, let me think about my sins. You know, and that's what the words they use. You got to think about your sins. Um, and and then they would come back uh, a few hours later and torture me again. So I wasn't I wasn't in the ropes wow. the entire time. Um, so plateaus of pain, and then I prayed a lot and, uh, you know, thought about um, warm breezes and sunny beaches and, you know, uh, nice things and home and my wife. And uh, so, uh, you know, I just, I tried to uh, escape mentally uh, from from the prison. So what happened after the two days? Uh, they taught me they, this little cell. They tossed me back in this eight foot by eight foot cell, and um, uh, that, that's where I was going to spend, you know, the next uh, several months of, of the uh, of the situation in this little cell. Um, the cell was uh, there were there were bunk beds, if you can imagine, eight foot by eight, and then there are. Uh, on two sides, on uh, the sides of two walls, there were wooden, a wooden structure where you had a bed. And so eventually uh, I had three roommates in that little cell. There were four beds and, and four of us in that cell. Uh, the, 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 uh, the toilet was a two gallon bucket over in the corner, uh, rusted out top, and just you know, stuck to high heavens, uh, no windows. In the door, there was there was a, a flap in the door where the guard could come at any moment and drop this flap and see what I was doing in that cell. Um, the uh, and and the guards would do that. They the first day I got no food at all and no water at all, and I was really really thirsty. Um, they finally brought some rice and uh, a little jug of uh, of hot water. They boiled all of the water that we drank. They have to boil every every uh, every cup of water, which which was good. I think we would have died because uh, the water was very much contaminated, and uh, I don't think we would have survived. 
had we had to drink their water. <clears throat> so they boil all the water. They boil their water too. But um, and we get a, a little liter, a liter jug of water every day. And uh, it and then it became a, a kind of a routine that twice a day, you get a bowl of rice, and sometimes some broth. Um, the this this rice was you know maybe a cup of rice twice a day, one about ten o'clock, one about two o'clock in the afternoon, and then you had a twenty-hour stretch with nothing to eat. So we got pretty skinny. Uh, figure I lost about fifty pounds while I was there. And how did um, I mean you've said that very nonchalant, but the reality of it, it would have been horrific. What what's the reality like in that cell with the other um, prisoners? Were you uh, plotting escapes? Were you, was there any chance? I mean, I'm assuming there was probably no chance of escape. But what was the reality of a sort of the day to day situation between the prisoners? We did plan escape all the time. We were always looking for a way to escape. <clears throat> the um, and a couple of guys did. Uh, uh, well, they, they didn't escape. They got out of the prison camp, but they were captured, brought back, and tortured for 27 days. One died of the torture. Um, so uh, the the big problem with escape was that we were 200 miles behind enemy lines. And so you could get out of the cell and out of the camp, but to, uh, you know, uh, that, that part of... Uh, uh, Vietnam is very, very populated. So a lot of people, and you just couldn't sneak through all those people to get to safety. So we, we thought about uh, escape a lot. We started uh, teaching each other things. Um, we taught courses, anything we could remember from our college days. See, most of us were fighter pilots. This was an air war over North Vietnam. Uh, in the South, they didn't take very many prisoners. Those guys were killed. Uh, but in the north, they were shooting us down, and um, and so the the prison camp was just pretty much nothing but pilots and air crews, because that's uh, that you know that that's who were there. They were shooting down, and so uh, in you know in any given camp, we had all pilots, and so we were fairly educated, you know, just to to the man. We probably all had master's degrees. We had uh, bachelor's or master's or even PhDs in there. Uh, and so uh, we started teaching each other courses. And as a matter of fact, when we came home, the University of Maryland gave us credit for some of these courses that we had taken in the prison camp without books or, or PowerPoints or computers or anything else. We learned from each other. And it was kind of amazing how... A guy could lay back on his board bed and just think about a subject and remember um, the specifics of uh, of things that he had learned many years before. And it just, it's amazing how much is in your brain when you uh, slow down, you don't have the distractions of daily life to, uh, uh, to, to, to hamper your, your memory. So we taught each other courses. We we played games with each other. We told jokes to each other. We made up poetry and um, music and uh, and anything we could do because it, it, you know the, the idle time was really one of the worst parts of the, of the prison stay was just 
nothing day after day after day no books no window no tv no telephone no pencil no paper uh nothing but our own minds and so um you know we found that when when you had a roommate now some guys were in solitary confinement for four and a half years uh the more senior i was a very junior guy the more senior guys had it worse than i did uh and so i was only in solitary for a short period of time and some of them were in for a long long time um but there were conflicts you know when you get four guys in an eight foot by eight foot prison cell you're going to have disagreements and um uh and so it was it, it was it was pretty you know it was pretty terse in, at some moments now we were all military guys and so the first thing you did when you moved into a new camp or a roommate showed up was to compare your date of rank uh, and your lineal number. Um, and so um, so we always knew who was senior to whom. And so in every cell and every cell block and every camp, um, we, we had an hierarchy, a military uh, command. And one guy was calling the shots and he knew who he was and we all knew who he was. And so anytime you had a disagreement about something, it could always be solved by taking it up to to the senior level and let them decide what the answer was. Um, I had heard that you created a code with the other um, uh, I'm sorry, prisoners. What? I had heard that you created another uh, code. A code? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. We call it the tap code. <clears throat> and... Um, we use it in a lot of different ways. I got this code when I was still alone and uh, in this prison cell. And the cell next to mine was a storeroom. But the guy on the other side of that storeroom uh, gathered little pieces of wire and twisted them together and poked it out a hole in his cell wall and across this storeroom over the boxes and around the shovels and through the ropes and into the wow. little hole in my cell wall, 14 feet away. It was unbelievable. This guy could do this. And it took him months and months and months to perfect this. But it was that important for him to uh, communicate with me. And so he passed um, a note written on a piece of toilet paper in ink made from ashes or brick dust and a little quill pen fashioned out of a stick of bamboo, uh, a note that had the code. The code, we call it the tap code, is a five by five matrix of the alphabet, five lines, five rows, and numbers down the long side and across the top, indicating any letter of the alphabet would be represented by two numbers, number of the line, then the number of the row. So A, first line, first row, one tug, one more tug. We left out K just to make it come out five by five. So Z was five uh, down and five across, five tugs, five more tugs. A very cumbersome code. But this code became our language. It was absolutely our lifeblood. I don't think I'd be alive today if we, if we weren't able to communicate with each other because we needed that community. You know, we needed that, um, that the trust uh, we needed to be together. Uh, and so 
uh, it was just vital that that in every case we uh, when a new guy would come into the camp that was high priority was to get him online to uh, teach that guy the tap code then we used that tap code in a lot of different ways if a guy was out in the prison yard chopping wood for the fire or sweeping or whatever he was doing and if he's making noise he could use the code uh while he chopped wood chop 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 and he would it would spell out a message that the entire camp could hear it was like a radio station <laughs> and and it was uh it and the, and the enemy never caught on to that they never figured out that he was actually chopping in a code now we were pilots so we all knew morris code but in most situations you couldn't distinguish a dot from a dash you know you, you couldn't chop wood with a dash or a dot you couldn't tug on a wire with a dash or a dot it just didn't work that way and so this tap code became our language and the and the interesting part was the importance of the tap code and the reason it was a life-saving principle property in that prison camp was that it wasn't it wasn't the words it wasn't the sentences it wasn't the top secret escape plans we were passing around the life-saving value of communication in a prison camp was the simple validation of another human being because in those prison cells when it was dark and it was in a lot of the camps and you were alone as I mentioned, some guys were in solitary confinement for four and a half years. If it was dark and you were alone, you'd, you'd lose track. You, you wouldn't know what was a real memory, what was a hallucination that you had had of, of a memory. And so you need a baseline. You need to validate your sanity. Sometimes you even wondered if you were alive or dead. You, there, was, there was no way to really know. So the simple tugging on a wire. And to have that word where I tug back meant two things. Number one, somebody's responding to something I am doing physically, thus I exist. Number two, somebody cares. So in my in my presentations, you know, as as, as you know, I'm a motivational speaker. In my presentations, I I, I draw that parallel in in corporations, in families, in, in associations where largely the communication is more of a heart-to-heart -heart validation of a human being. It's the old adage, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, and so it's, I think it's very important that, um, that when we establish communication with someone, that it's more than just lip to ear. It's, it's, it's more than just, a, it is, it's, it's more than just a, a text, you know, or an email to somebody, it, it's got to be validating. It's got to be telling folks that, that not only that they're alive, but that they're important and that we care. At one point you got trotted out for a propaganda video, um, as did famously John McCain. Did you know he famously uh, blinked out the word torture? during that um, video, propaganda video, were you aware that he had done that? Not at the time. And it wasn't actually John McCain that did that. It was another guy, Jeremiah Denton. Oh, okay. 
he blinked uh, torture. Mm. Um, and um, it was pretty revolutionary because that was the first, I mean, that was the first real indication to anybody that we were being tortured. Um, and so, um, but yeah, he, he, he was, um, yeah. And in fact, you can find that on the internet. Um, mm. he, um, it was a pretty brave thing for him to do. And, and when you see, when you see that on, on YouTube, it, it looks like that he's, um, that he's mentally ill, you know, he, he's mm. blinking his eyes like, um, like he can't understand something. Uh, or that the the lights are too bright, and they didn't figure that out. Um, they, you know, they they went ahead and published that, and and the world knew that we were being tortured. So at the time, you didn't know. At what point did you become aware that he had done that? Uh, it it uh, it got through the camp. Uh, he was in a different camp when he did that, and wow. so. Uh, see, I was in and out of six different prison camps while I was there. And so different things happened in different camps. And in fact, there were more than six. I was just in and out of six. I thought and you I were moved... at the Hotel Hilton the whole time. No, not the whole time. Oh. In fact, I started there and I ended there. But okay. uh, during that six years, I was in six different prison camps. So, um, uh, And so something would happen in one of these camps. And we wouldn't know about it until we were moved to that camp or to another camp where we ran into people who had been there. And so, um, so it was a couple of years really before I found out that uh, Jerry Denton had done that. What was the reality of, I mean, I'm shooting from a psychological point of view, you didn't know at what point you were going to, to get out. Um, were you getting any Red Cross packages coming through to you at all? No, there was never any Red Cross packages. Now, uh, after about three years, they allowed uh, us to receive uh, a letter. Uh, it wasn't really a letter, it was a postcard, uh, six lines on a postcard from home. And they allowed us to write a six-line postcard to home and and then near the end of the war uh, about the last year uh we actually got gifts we, we packages from home uh where you know we'd get uh, chocolate bars and toothpaste and that kind of thing so um so thing things eased up uh in 1969 1970 for several reasons. One of the reasons was our wives were back here petitioning our government and the governments around the world to put pressure on the enemy to stop torturing their husbands. They um, they set up an organization uh, called Voices in Vital America, Viva, and uh, they sold little silver bracelets with our names on them for $5 a piece. And this uh, this, with this money, they made trips to, to Paris and to embassies and consulates all over the world uh, to uh, on behalf of us, the POWs. Um, and and this kind of proved to the enemy that we were important. They better treat us better, and they did. The torture stopped for the most part, 
and, and primarily because of the wives were back here uh, making noise. And the government, our government did not like this at all. Henry Kissinger was Secretary of State, and he writes in his memoirs that they were a, they were a thorn in his side because they were out there, uh, you know, making uh, uh, international relations uh, that he felt like that he should be doing, and they were out there doing it. But it worked, and, uh, and so our treatment improved uh, after that. So um, we, uh, you know, we would get, um, I guess I got maybe two or three little packages uh, from home. And, um, it, you know, this is near, more near the end of the war. You mentioned that it was two years before you saw your co-pilot. What was that re, um, reunion like? Oh, I didn't actually, I, I, there was no reunion. I just saw him that he was alive. Oh, okay. I was in a, um, I was outside my cell uh, on a little work party and I was behind a, a, a big wall and the guard took a smoke break or something and I climbed up on this wall and I looked over the wall and I saw him. And so... Um, so I knew he was alive, but I didn't actually talk to him. I didn't actually, I didn't actually talk to him until we all got home. So, being in that situation, were you surprised about how brutal humans can be? Yeah, I was. Um, it's, um, you know, it, I mean, it's kind of amazing how inhumane yeah. a human being can be to another human. Now, um, you know, of course, you know, I mean, I, I was part of the effort. I was, I was a military guy and I was over there shooting down airplanes and, and dropping bombs on them. And, and so they saw me as being pretty inhumane as well. Uh, and uh, and I, I guess the difference was I, I was at arm's length <laughs> from them. And these guys were hands-on with me. But um, war's, a, war's a pretty brutal thing. And... Um, it's certainly not for the faint of heart. I saw, um, well, I heard that you were quite reflective in terms of your stay. And you said that if, there was one quote from you that said the diversity should not be wasted. How did you, I mean, that's a pretty poignant statement. How did you sort of get to that point? Because most people I would imagine would probably go crazy in that situation. I don't know how mentally I would, um, I mean, lockdown was hard enough. So I, I couldn't imagine going through the torture and, and, you know, the stuff that you went through. Um, and I was in the comfort of my home, you know, like it's very, very different. So how did you manage to keep your sanity given that, and then come out with such a almost positive reflective um, attitude? Well, um, I, I learned a lot just in the first few months because I, you know, I started out that whole situation being very angry, very bitter. Just, I just really wanted to wring somebody's neck. I blamed everybody I could think of. Blame the president for starting this war. Blame the mechanic that put my airplane together. Blame the enemy, of course. Blame these guards that are torturing me. And um, and 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 I, I got this quote. Um, from the guy that passed the wire across the storeroom and into my prison cell, he was passing around patriotic quotes 
And this quote was this, acid does more harm in the vessel it's stored than on the subject it's poured. What that meant to me was that I can have all this hate and vitriol within me. It's not hurting the enemy. It's not hurting the subject it's poured. It's hurting the vessel. It's hurting me where it's stored. And at that time, you know, I thought to myself, I think I'm going to live through this. But if I die, they're going to have to work on it. And I'm not going to kill myself with all this bitterness within me. And so, um, and so I, I started looking for value within the adversity. Um, and um, my, you know, my mom, uh, you know, would always tell me that, uh, you know, regardless of your circumstance, uh, even as bad as it hurts, you got to look for uh, the silver lining. You got to look for the rainbow. You got you got to figure out what you know w- w- what value is going to be here and w- what's worth the pain. And uh, and we have a we have a very interesting statistic: the prisoners of war from Vietnam, five hundred ninety-one of us came home, and they assumed, uh, like 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 you would assume. That we, you know, we would be uh, mentally deranged because of this. We'd have PTSD really bad. You know, we, uh, in fact, they had our families prepared to institutionalize us the rest of our lives, put us in a funny farm. You know, that that's what they thought was coming back from Vietnam. Well, uh, a study was done just uh, six years ago of all the combatants of Vietnam. Um, 30.6% have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Of the prisoners of war, 4% have PTSD. And it's primarily the guys shot down near the end of the war. They, they were not tortured. And they were only in prison camps for a few weeks or a month or two. They're the ones that have the mental problems. So... Um, uh, and and w- from 591 men, we have produced so far uh, 17 generals and seven admirals. There's no group this size in history has ever done this, uh, of, of any group. Most of us retired as senior-grade military officers. We we went back to flying jet airplanes, as I did, uh, and commanding ships uh, and uh, and battalions all over the world. We have CEOs. We have two United States senators. We have two ambassadors from our number. We have a governor, several mayors, a vice presidential candidate, and a presidential candidate from 591 men. And they're telling us today we're healthier mentally and physically than if we hadn't been shot down. So that's where I that's where I come up with my idea that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. That you can take any challenge in life, and you know this, you have your story as well. You, You know this as well. That you take any challenge, and, and 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 you know it's not modern day history. You know, look back to uh, Helen Keller, you know, or or uh, or Jesus Christ. You know, look at the people in history, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, look at uh, Nelson Nelson Mandela. All these people um, took lemons in their life, and made lemonade out of them, and so that's where I get my my point that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. Given your analogy in regards to the acid, which I think in terms of harming the vessel rather than what you pour on it more, 
it sounds like you've almost come to the um, position where you have, well, I'll ask you this directly. Have you forgiven the prison guards? Absolutely. Wow. Uh, I, I forgave them even while I was there. I went back to Vietnam uh, about uh, eight years ago. They invited me back to meet the camp commander, the guy who wow. had been in charge of all of our torture. Wow. I, didn't, yeah, I, I really didn't want to go at first. And um, then they said, well, you know, he's in his late 80s and may not have long to live, and he wants to meet a prisoner of war. So I still said no. <laughs> and they said, well, we'll pay for a vacation for you and your family. So I took my wife and three of our four kids, and we went back to Vietnam. And I met the camp commander. Now, I had forgiven him a long time ago. Um, but, but it was really interesting because I thought he might want to apologize. <laughs> but uh, he didn't want to apologize. Really? But, yeah, well, the the first thing was he wanted to hug me, he, uh, you know, and, and and that's unusual, you know, in the Asian tradition. Um, he wanted to hug me, and then he stepped back and he said, uh, "I've got to tell you that I was your warden from 1968 to 1972, and my finest achievement was keeping you happy and healthy while you were here." <laughs> I said. Bubba, don't you remember? <laughs> and I talked to him for 45 minutes, and he never would ever admit ever hurting an American. It was just, wow. uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting to, to see this then guy. Why, why did he want to meet you? If that was the situation, why did he want to meet you? And so two parts of this question, why did he want to meet you? And then that would have left me quite bitter. So did you, how did you walk away what was your mean like oh I, you know walk, I, I, away from that first of all uh i'm not sure why he wanted to meet me uh sometimes i think that he was just trying to justify his own position because if the world knew that he had been in charge of the torture he might be liable there might be a, a nuremberg trial you know for war crimes because it was a war crime and uh, they had signed the Geneva Convention. Uh, and so I think he might have felt somewhat guilty and that maybe meeting me would assuage his guilt uh, or maybe even um, maybe even prove his innocence, you know, to befriend me. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that to be true. Uh, that's just my, my best guess is that he was just trying to justify what he had done. What was the organization that connected the two of you? Uh, the University of Hanoi, the um, the um, head of their history department, University of Hanoi, um, was the one who contacted me and wanted me to come over and uh, uh, and and be there uh, with him. Uh, I also met some of the fighter pilots that I had fought against in in a dogfight, and uh, we laid out the aviation chart and tried to figure out you know who was here and who was there and how fast were you going and and uh, and and nobody got shot down that day but uh, it was kind of interesting to meet these other fighter pilots because again they they didn't have any any animosity and I had no axe to grind you know they were 
guys fighting for their country, just like I was fighting for mine. And so mm. it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting communication. When did you find out that the war was over and that you were being released? We'd always wondered how we would find out and how would we respond. Um, in fact, anytime the food got better, you know, if they'd ever give us, you know, a, a piece of fat in the broth, you know, <laughs> that, oh, they're trying to fatten us up. Um, and, uh, and, and they tricked us several times. They would say, uh, you want to go home? Oh yeah, I want to go home. Well, here, sign this confession, you know, that you bombed uh, schools and hospitals and pagodas and we'll send you home. And of course it was all bogus. And we knew that. So the first time that I really thought we were going home was they, they brought in a piece of wrapping paper, put it on the dirt floor, told us to put our foot on it, and they traced around our foot with a pencil. They were going to make some shoes for us. Well, you know, obviously, we hadn't seen a pair of shoes in six years. And, and sure enough, then they brought in a pair of trousers with a real zipper, Hadn't seen a zipper in six years. Um, and the food started to get better. You know, they, they gave us some, some cans of tuna. Uh, they wanted us to go outside and get a little color in our face. This was about a month before. And then um, we saw uh, a U.S. Air Force colonel in uniform wandering around the camp. And, uh, and he was sort of the first party that was going to, you know, figure out how we were going home. The camp commander came into our cell and said, today's the day you're going home. And we said, no, not until you prove to us that the sick, injured, and enlisted men have gone. And, uh, and we were serious, and he couldn't believe it. He said, wait a minute, I'm offering you your freedom. And we said, well, freedom is vital to us, but not without our integrity. We're not going to go home leaving guys here that need American medical aid. And not only that, but we want to go home in order. The guys who are here the longest get to go home first. Well, it almost caused an international incident. In fact, Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, um, sent us a message, said, you guys get on the airplane. You know, we're trying to get this war over. Um, so the camp commander finally produced uh, a manifest, the first plane load of guys, and it was, in fact, the sick and injured among us, the guys that needed American medical care. So then it was our turn. We got on a bus over the dike. Uh, from the top of the dike, we could see the, the airport, uh, the enemy's airport, but this time it had a big United States Air Force C-141, a cargo airplane, ready to wing us away to freedom. We got on the airplane, and even even after we were on the plane, it was it was just silence. You know, nobody cried or cheered or moved. Uh, we finally got into the air, and we all started hugging and kissing the Air Force nurses <laughs> we hadn't seen for a while. <laughs> I'm sure that they probably didn't didn't have an issue with that. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I met one of those nurses just fairly recently, and she said that there was a, a there was a big competition in the nurse corps of who got to be on those flights. Oh, really? Oh, that's gorgeous. <laughs> I was impressed. <laughs> so you're hopping on this big, enormous airplane, hugging and kissing nurses. I mean, you've 
very stark contrast to your eight by eight cell. When did you realize that you were safe? When we, uh, when we're over the water, you know, it, it was, I mean, during that war, of course, I was on an aircraft carrier. I was pretty safe because I was on the water. And we knew that when we went feet dry, that's when we, when an airplane goes from the water to the land and your feet dry. When you come across the other way, your feet wet. And we knew that anytime we were feet dry, uh, we were over enemy territory. And if we were shot down, we were pro- probably going to be captured. We always knew that if we were feet wet, uh, we were probably going to be safe. And so when we when we went over the beach from from the the airport in Hanoi, we flew right over the beach, and we could see the water. And and I, I finally felt safe. We then circled the seventh fleet, uh, and the aircraft carriers were still down there. The aircraft carrier that I flew from, you know, was back on station, and. Um, we circled the aircraft carriers and uh, the, the admiral of the fleet sent a welcome home. So we were impressed. When first you got was, down, sorry, keep going. First stop was Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And uh, we were there for two days. Uh, and uh, the first thing they did was take us into the cafeteria. Well, the dietitians had decided that we probably couldn't digest food very well. So the first meal they had prepared for us was mashed up rice, Gerber yeah. baby food rice. <laughs> we said, how about a big greasy cheeseburger and a beer? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get it? <laughs> yep. Yep. One of my buddies uh, said, he said, I want a dozen eggs. Uh, and ham. And he went back and he got another seven eggs after he ate the first dozen. <laughs> oh my goodness. Was the dietitian yeah. correct? No, no, they were way off. Everybody was way off. The The first, the first psychiatrist, uh, in fact, the first interview I had, you know, right off that airplane, I was at a psychiatrist's office. And I think he wanted to figure out, you know, if I really was crazy, like they all had suspected. Well, first of all, I asked him about my wife, uh, and he couldn't tell me. He said, I'll let you try to call your wife. I tried to call my wife. She didn't answer. Okay, I'll let you call your mother, my mom and dad. I called them. My mom said, your wife hung on for five years, then three months ago, she filed for divorce. Well, the psychiatrist already knew this. He just wasn't going to tell me, but he was waiting for my reaction. And so, you know, I put the phone down and and said, you know, I'm really, I'm sorry. You know, I've kind of spent the last six years uh, thinking about how wonderful it's going to be to be with my wife again and plan the rest of my life around her. And she said, and and the psychiatrist, he said, "Um, well, you need to get angry about this. You need to go back to your hospital room and kick down the door, put your fist through the wall or show some physical a response to this terrible, terrible thing that just happened to you. He said, you have the right to be bitter. And I said to the psychiatrist, doctor, I have the right to have diarrhea. <laughs> I choose not to be bitter. Thank you very much. I said, you got you to gotta understand, this is the most wonderful day of my life. I am free. I have a doorknob on the inside of my door. 
yes, I'm disappointed that my wife did not uh, hang around. But oh, by the way, you know, there's a lot of life to live and I'm going to go live it. So thank you very much. So see, even the psychiatrist there uh, assumed that we would all be uh, very angry and and uh, that, that this adversity would just make us really, really bitter. And uh, and we and we came back saying, no, no, you know, we we got a lot of life to live. So let's get on with it. You mentioned that there's the number 500 odd uh, prisoners of war that were in Vietnam. Have you guys over the years remained in touch? We certainly have. Uh, you yeah. know, they're my best friends. These guys will tell you that I saved their life and I know they saved mine. And when you have that kind of a bond, you know, it's uh, it's pretty tough to break a bond like that. Mm. So, in fact, we're having a big reunion um, later this month. As a matter of fact, it's going to be the, the anniversary, 50 years to the day that we had a dinner in the president's White House in Washington, D.C. It was the biggest dinner the White House has ever served. To date, we still hold the record. Our reunion is going to be in the Nixon Library in California. And uh, we're going to clear out uh, the ballroom. And they say they're going to be serving us on the same china and the same silver that we ate 50 years ago. And they say it may be the same food, which wasn't all that great 50 years ago. <laughs> Surely they can change the menu for you guys. <laughs> uh, I hope so. <laughs> it, given your perspective and that you had to go, well, you didn't have to go, but you went through an absolutely horrific ordeal to come out and have this incredibly positive um, mindset. What do you think the message is that you would like to give people that haven't gone through that adversity so what wisdom would you give them without them having to go through it? Well, first of all, I, th I think you have to believe that you still have a choice, regardless of your surroundings, how terrible it can be, you still are in control. You're in control of your attitude, the way you're responding to the adversity, you know, the thoughts that you have. You you can you know you can, you can take a, a bad news with a smile or a frown, you can laugh at something or you can cry at something that's actually within your control. Now most people don't believe that you know they think no you know uh, when when I'm hurt you know I'm not going to laugh about being hurt. Well, I challenge you know I I, I challenge you to uh, to search uh, make make it make it a puzzle you know. Uh, Make it like, uh, you know, if Charlie Plum is right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to prove him wrong. I'm gonna search for some good that can happen because of this challenge that I am facing. And uh, and if you look hard enough and search diligently, you can find an advantage in every every adversity in life. I'm convinced. So that would be the first thing that I would say was that, you know, you're still in control. Um, there's a, a poem that meant a lot to us in a prison camp. Um, it's called Invictus. And uh, it goes something like, uh, black is the night that covers me, dark as a pit from pole to pole. 
I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It goes on to say, uh, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. And then it says, um, uh, beyond this uh, veil of human tears lies but the but the uh, horror of the shade. Um, but through the years, uh, I am not afraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how filled with punishments the soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And, and, and I think that's, that's sort of the message, and, and that's sort of the, the byline that, that we lived by over there, was regardless of our fate, uh, I'm still the captain of my soul. Charlie, did you ever um, meet up with Anne afterwards? I did. Uh, Anne was my high school sweetheart. Married her the day after I graduated from the Naval Academy. Um, she filed for divorce three months before I came home. I met with her. Uh, I was in a hospital for a few weeks, and I came back to Kansas City and met with her. And uh, I, I wanted to talk her out of the divorce. But she had a big diamond engagement ring. I uh-huh. could never afford to buy her a diamond, but she was waving this in my face. And so we talked about, hey, what happened to the dog and what happened to the house? And and um, and so I, I went ahead and granted her the divorce. Um, the, uh, the military had sent all of my pay back to her. And so she had six years of... Um, a pretty nice benefit while I was there and it spent it all and what, which was fine in a lot of ways, she had it worse than I did. I always knew I was alive. She never knew I was alive from one day to the next. I was confident that I was going to be come back healthier and, and, and happier uh, because of the experience. And, uh, and she, and she never knew. In fact, these same psychiatrists were telling her, you know, that, that I'd probably be mentally deranged if I ever did come home. So anyway, she, she really had a tough, she had some mental problems. I have a, I have a brother 10 years younger than I, and he would go over to her house to mow her lawn. Uh, and, and, and he, at that time was the same age as the age we were when we met. And we look a lot alike, my brother and me. And uh, she would break out in serious hives I mean, emergency room hives uh, for um, uh, for days. She would be hospitalized because she had seen somebody that looked like me. So she really had it tough. And uh, of course, I didn't know this that while I was there, but I found out when I came home. So I granted her the divorce and gave her the money and and all that stuff, and 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 that was going to be fine. She said goodbye. I said goodbye. I did not see or hear from her for forty-two years. Wow. And uh, and so uh, six years ago, I got a, a, a package in the mail. A package was a um, bunch of black and white pictures that she had taken of me and my buddies at the Naval Academy when we were dating. But no letter inside. Well, not from her. There was one letter. It was from my mother. My, the letter that my mother had sent to her uh, the day I was shot down. And the letter was almost prophetic. It said, it's such a shame that Charlie has been shot down now. He had such potential for 
affecting the lives of people. And then the next sentence was, but who knows what God has in mind? This experience may give him even more opportunity to touch the lives of people. And so, um, very, a very prophetic by my mother. So I wrote, uh, so I wrote uh, her back and, uh, uh, and said, uh, uh, you know, really, I'm, I'm really, really sorry that you had to go through what you went through. And, uh, and, and I hope you have a happy life now. <clears throat> so she called me up and we talked for 45 minutes. And, you know, she's, she married the guy she was engaged to. They're living happily ever after. I'm married, have four kids, four grandkids, and I have a very, very happy life and all is well. And so when, when we finally, you know, got to communicate with that, I said, you know, that waving that diamond ring in front of me, I thought that was kind of low class. <laughs> she said, she said, you know, the reason I wore that diamond was I was afraid you'd talk me out of the divorce. And I just kept looking at my diamond and <laughs> thinking that I had to go through with this. So, um, you know, it's, it's amazing how, you know, again, adversity, uh, it, 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 it comes around and, uh, and sometimes these things work out and it has for us. She's very happy. I'm very happy. And so I, I don't, I can't even imagine being as happy, uh, had, had she hung on as I am today with my wife and kids. Captain Charlie Plum, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you. Your ability to see the positive through all of this is is um, a lesson for all of us in terms of what we go through in, in life is not nearly as bad as um, what you have and, and to have your mindset and outlook is, uh, is incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And um, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much for helping tell my story. I I really appreciate your your kind words. Uh, you're a very you're very interesting and and interested uh, interviewer, and so you you pick out the right the right questions to ask, and I appreciate that. No problems, Charlie. You have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 